Welcome to another edition of the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. The structure of the economy doesn't support this continued growth. These secondary markets make this private market liquid. It's telling us there's going to be a financial accident or recession. When you get in, you can get out. The biggest problems that we're facing today is the problem of inflation. It's too big to ignore. In emerging market investing, what's comfortable is rarely profitable. My name's Stuart Foley. I'll be your host. Today's topic is CRE debt. And our guest says that the opportunity set for CRE debt is among the most compelling that they've seen. And we're joined today by Dean Dolcinos, head of debt portfolio management, and Justin Pinckney, head of private debt at AEW. Gentlemen, thanks for being on. Great to be here. We are thrilled. Let's start this off like we start them all. Dean, what was your hometown, your high school mascot, and what makes insurance asset management so cool? So hometown was Holyoke, Massachusetts, located in the western end of the state. Our mascot at school was uh, a knight. So we were the Holyoke Knights. And uh, insurance asset management, I think, for me, is really about the end game, right? So w- when I worked at investment platforms owned by Mass Mutual, there was a fellow who was in our origination platform who used to say, everything we do is for the widows and orphans. And so I think at the end of the day, it's an opportunity to combine a very sophisticated investment career with a business that really offers a product that helps people. And that's, that's a pretty cool combination. I love that. And I, I feel exactly the same way. And Justin, for you, hometown, first job, and... What makes insurance asset management so cool from your perspective? Hometown is Walterboro, South Carolina. It's a small city of just over 5,000 people, about 40 miles west of Charleston, South Carolina. First job was at 10 years old, working for my family's business as a hard labor in the hot low country South Carolina summers, uh, doing some landscaping, hardscaping. So it certainly taught me the lesson of a a hard-earned dollar early in life. Absolutely. It's hot in the summer in South Carolina, man. Like crazy hot. That's like. That's almost, that's rough. That's a, it's a rough start. It's true what they say, though. It's not the heat that'll get you. It's, it's the humidity. So you got to be watching out for both uh, in those, those hot, humid summers. Absolutely. What's cool about insurance asset management to me is the sense of community. And that's something that was revealed uh, as a frequent attendee of a corporate pension and insurance investor conference that I attended for many years. The sense of belonging, the sense of fiduciary responsibility, and the sense of the friendly nature of the relationships among the insurers and attendants really resonated with me. I think it's about collaboration and ultimately about working on behalf of policyholders that I think is is very unique among allocators. It is so true. And I mean, I've been at this for a minute, as you can see by my graying hair and beard. And for example, the people who listen to this podcast, like, a whole lot of them know each other, right? And it is a really tight-knit community. It's not a big group of people, but they control, you know, $9 trillion of AUM local uh, in the U.S. and $35 trillion. It's globally, it's 30% of the world's invested assets based on the numbers that I've seen. And But there is a tremendous amount of camaraderie, part of which I think is all of the externalities that insurance companies have to face. And um, I think that, there, there is some collegiality as a result. So thanks for that. And so let's talk about CRE debt for a moment. And you mentioned, I mentioned at the top of the show that you think it's the most compelling opportunity you've seen in over a decade. What is your current market view, Justin? 
I think in general about uh, the market opportunity and, and where we sit in it today, I think we are clearly moving in a regime shift type of way from a low risk, low yield environment that has been present for the vast amount of the past decade to a higher yielding, higher risk, more uncertain uh, economic uh, and interest rate environment as it surrounds uh, you know, both fiscal and monetary policy. So we think there are certain macroeconomic headwinds that are facing us that are creating some type of you know, valuation adjustment. We think that that has been most concentrated in commercial real estate relative to other asset classes. So in terms of a market view, we would see commercial real estate as probably leading the cycle in terms of its impact so far from a rising interest rate environment relative to other asset classes who have seen less value destruction, value impairment, and, and ultimate value adjustment. So obviously, the big headlines today within commercial real estate are centered around office. Uh, I think rightfully so. Uh, we think that that is truly a secular shift and ultimately how office demand will be driven, how office will be used. Uh, and we think that story will take some time to play out. But what we see elsewhere is that, you know, for other secular beneficiaries of, of growth, of migration, you know, strategies like uh, residential or multifamily, logistics, uh, and even parts of healthcare, we think are, are clearly going to have strong longer term demand drivers. So while fundamentals uh, are softening, you know, in many of the even desired sectors today, we still see those as the longer term beneficiaries of demand growth uh, once we get past a, a period of, of, of likely heightened supply. So market view, I, I think more generally summed up is a more uncertain economic environment today than we've seen in quite some time, but one that rewards you as a lender, unlike it has in many, many years. That's a great overview. And Dean, we've talked on this show in the past about the banking crisis and the fact that banks are pulling out of CRE lending for a myriad of reasons, which is going to create an opportunity for private capital in this space. Can you dig in there and talk to us about why that is the case and what you're seeing? Because I, I think that Justin's exactly right. I think that investors generally are nervous, particularly about office, right? But those things, you know, as one of our guests said, you know, comfortable is rarely profitable, right? So. Can you talk to us about the banking crisis a little bit? I think there's a whole lot of kind of high level conversation around the banks pulling out. But I think if you dig in, there's there's a next level analysis on this that, that really underpins what we think is the opportunity here. If you think about it, the banks are largely the lenders of choice or have been the lenders of choice for transitional lending along with the debt funds. And what I mean by that is lending on real estate assets that are not fully stabilized. If you think about the other typical sources of capital, life insurance companies, the agencies, CMBS, securitization, those strategies tend to focus on stabilized assets. They don't do well with future fundings. They don't do well with changing economics at the underlying collateral level. And so as we think about the parties who are out of the market now, right, for all those reasons you cited, right, regulatory issues, deposit issues, you know, lack of round tripping, right, there's not a lot of repayments coming back to banks right now. The banks are the large portion of financing source next to the debt funds, which is focused on this kind of transitional lending space. And the other sort of corollary to that is that 
if you're a debt fund and you've got a mid double digit return, uh, kind of a value add return profile, maybe focused on mezzanine or sub debt only, you also need bank financing to provide leverage to your strategy. So, so there's actually a component of the debt fund space that is out of the market or, or struggling to get all the pieces they need to put together what it is that they typically do. So, so as a result of that, we see an opportunity right now in the senior lending space, call it 55 to 65% LTV as a position in the capital stack. And there really is not a very deep bid for that space, both on uh, transitional assets that are existing as well as on construction assets. And that's, that's providing an opportunity for what we see as better structure in our deals, so lower advance rates, better covenant structures, and also higher spreads. So obviously we have a high base rate environment now, but combine that environment with the higher cost of capital, a higher illiquidity premium, if you will, that's just creating, I would say, a, a moment in time opportunity for what is otherwise an all-weather strategy, right? And you think about it, the the many uh, life insurance companies have been in this business for a long time and they've been focused on long-dated fixed rate CRE debt, but there's opportunities in shorter floating rate for PNCs and other companies that have a need for a, a more liquid investment. So, you know, to kind of sum it up, the banking crisis that we see or the banking situation that we see right now, we anticipate is going to continue for some period of time, right? This is not a short-term event. It's probably a multi-year event. And therefore, we think this opportunity to provide capital to the senior position in the capital stack is going to continue for a period of time uh, that enables a lot of investors to get involved in it. And, you know, you bring up a good point. You know, it's my own personal bias, but I always think of of life insurers here. But the fact that you recognize the structural characteristics that are different about PNC carriers and the fact that they can play here too, I think is really worth highlighting. So, you know, lots of talk about private assets these days. Can you talk a little bit and expand on the private CRE debt space? Yeah, you know, as we think about it as an opportunity for investors, but especially insurance companies, given our topic today, there's really a lot of benefits that comes from it. You know, it offers diversification from public investments. You know, it's a, shown to be a lower correlation to other asset classes. It gives investors access to credits that wouldn't otherwise be available in other private credit strategies or public credit strategies. And it provides increased income and fees plus an illiquidity premium, especially in times of market dislocation, right? Which is, which is what we're absolutely seeing right now. And as we think about the way investments behave at various stages of dislocation or disruption in the market, there's sort of three stages you think about, right? So if, if you're in a, a lender position, the first thing you want to be able to do is curtail investment, right? Shut off future funding uh, to the extent you have future funding obligations in the event that there's distress at the asset level. So that is certainly a structural component of CRE debt. Uh, you also want to be able to rebalance or resize through good covenant structures, right? So that's kind of a level two, right? When you get to inflection points in the underlying loan, such as uh, an extension. If you've got covenant structures in place that require LTV tests or debt yield tests, you can end up having a requirement to resize the loan, right? Reduce your 
your level of risk by reducing your exposure to the underlying asset. And then finally, this offers a hard asset collateral structure, right? This is ultimately uh, CRE debt is secured by either a mortgage or some kind of a pledge in a structure that owns a piece of real property. So in an extreme downside scenario, we have access as a lender to a piece of collateral, which can be owned, operated, it has real value. It can be uh, repositioned in the market to the extent that there are difficulties in the market and ultimately lead to what we see as a much better loss given default outcome uh, in that extreme scenario. That's really helpful. And the collateralized nature is an important point. Justin, can you talk a little bit about CRE debt versus direct lending? And just kind of draw some comparisons and maybe some things that are similar. Happy to, Stuart. So this is an area that uh, I have some background in as a consultant and, and have have private debt, uh, which encompassed really all non-public fixed income instruments and funds. So I think both have a place in investor portfolios. Both have been adopted by the allocator community over the course of Many years, uh, I think increasingly so for direct lending as that industry as a whole has grown. So I think they can diversify each other. I think in a way, commercial real estate debt is just part of private credit in general, distinct from direct lending in a number of ways that Dean just described. So I think it's at the outset, I'll say they both have a place. They both offer diversification opportunities from traditional fixed income even from equity strategies. They both are very much in demand by borrowers today. They're both areas that the banking community has largely turned their back on uh, in, in some sort of way. Direct lending really more from the great financial crisis where banks truly curtailed their, their CNI lending desk in a meaningful way. And more recently with commercial real estate debt. So banks have been there. They have had abundant liquidity to, to lend on commercial real estate debt, whether that was money center banks, or regional banks or anything in between uh, for some period of time. We think that landscape is shifting. So we think that both of these these types of credit strategies will be growth areas for the market and, and ultimately will, we think, lead to additional opportunity on behalf of, of limited, limited partners. But I think to us, the credit quality for all the reasons Dean just mentioned, you know, you have real hard collateral that is more commodity in nature versus an operating business. It's easier to take it over in the event of a foreclosure. You have a more, I think, market accepted form of valuation for these assets too. I think for a private business, it's, you know, I think and ultimately it's what somebody's going to be willing to pay for it, but you've got a well-built out appraisal community. You've got lots of market comps with like for like assets across the street, if it's an office building or multifamily apartment complex or a warehouse within real estate. So far more market acceptance in, into uh, what a real value is uh, that serves as your collateral. So the ability to intervene when a uh, credit goes off plan, and ultimately if it defaults, the ability to intervene and then operate that property, we think is a stronger case for commercial real estate debt. You've got property management that's there today that can continue on or be replaced. And if you have a lending practice with an associated equity platform beside it, you know you can take that over in-house. You can special service your own loans. You can then own and operate it. And ultimately, we think that leads to better recovery rates uh, and more limited loss given default uh, ratios. For direct lending, you know certainly a broad landscape, you know, but we also think that credit quality is likely a step down. I think, admittedly, so for for a lot of the direct lending shops, they probably 
call their, their first lien Unitron strategies, generally in the double B to single B credit rating range, if you had to uh, imply a credit rating on those. And I think for a commercial real estate debt, it certainly spans a variety of credit ratings, just like direct lending can. But in terms of commercial real estate debt today, because of the lower advance rates, because you are lending on repriced collateral, we do think that those are gravitating more towards implied credit ratings of investment grade. We don't think that there is a substantial spread premium to be had from direct lending versus commercial real estate debt, at least in our experience in 2023 and what we're seeing in the pipeline. But uh, you know, we do think that the, the credit quality is a real piece that that investors would be would be wise to, to zoom in on. Again, both have place in portfolios, but we think the ability to intervene certainly greater in commercial real estate debt. And we think the illiquidity premium and risk adjusted return potential, again, we're biased, but of course, you know, we, we do think that that's certainly more in favor for commercial real estate debt today than it is broadly for direct lending. Thank you. That's very helpful. What about optionality in CRE debt? Can you talk about it? I hadn't really associated optionality with this asset class. And I'm, I'm really keen to know kind of how you view it. So on the optionality side, you know, absolutely. We, we think that, you know, because markets are not static, you constantly have to assess the market cycle, the phase of the market cycle that you're in at any given point in time. And today we think the optionality is fairly positive for commercial real estate debts. I think I'll just use some broad uh, generalizations for what could happen, you know, moving forward. And I think in a more polarized environment, if interest rates go higher, I think largely that will be due to a hotter than expected economic environment. And so in that case, commercial real estate debt, at least those that have floating rate uh, loan exposures, those will participate in higher interest rates. I think so that's good in terms of the income that it can provide to investors. I think it's also good at the asset protection level that the vast majority of lenders in the market for floating rate loan instruments require their borrowers to enter into interest rate swaps or more likely buy interest rate caps. And so your borrowers are protected also from rising interest costs. And we've seen that become a valuable protection for existing assets where these caps uh, start to kick in and they pay the lender the spread of difference between the stated cap rates and what the the prevailing market interest rate is. So that's provided a level of of protection to the borrowers uh, and their underlying cash flow on those those properties. So I think that's one potential outcome, right? Higher interest rates, commercial real estate can benefit from commercial real estate debt can benefit from that. Arguably, higher interest rates will create some more valuation uh, adjustments, right? I think all risk assets have to consider the risk free rate. Uh, commercial real estate's no different, but the reality I think of new loans today is that you have substantial equity subordination embedded in your loans. So advance rates six, eight quarters ago were routinely 70, 75% loan to value. Uh, today, they're 50, 60, maybe 65%. So even in that higher interest rate, higher economic growth uh, environment, you still have a lot of equity subordination to protect against declining property values. i say as the corollary, if you have a situation where interest rates decline very, very steadily uh, and go back to the old interest rate regime we've all become accustomed to since the, the financial crisis, uh, I think commercial real estate debt will be well insulated there as well. And I say that because you will have interest rate floors that are being set today routinely in the you know three to mid 4% range that will protect the yield on your investments in the event that interest rates decline below those, those rate floors. Uh, certainly, you'd be open to more prepayment risk in those environments. 
I think it's a wonder uh, if interest rates decline. I would argue that the economic environment is is, is probably uh, struggling. So it's a matter of what liquidity will be there. But if it does exist, we think that commercial real estate originated today or commercial real estate that originated today will also be protected by prepayment lockouts that are better than we've seen in quite some time or through other structures like minimum interest or uh, minimum multiple. So rates decline, you're protected in a number of ways. That protection wanes, right? The longer that interest rates stay low. But we do think that that optionality is very important to consider in terms of yield protection or yield enhancement in kind of either scenario. If you pull Dean and me and, and probably most others, we think the reality is probably somewhere in between of probably still high rates, maybe muted economic growth, but not necessarily depression level negative growth rates. But we, we think that today, you know, senior mortgages with much larger than we've seen in recent memory equity subordination and, and high income yields, you know, provide a lot of protection and a lot of return potential, particularly on a risk adjusted basis to investor portfolios. That was a great explanation. Thank you. And so, Dean, when we think about credit cycle evolution, right, when you think about CRE debt, where are we in the credit cycle? You mentioned earlier that CRE you think is leading. And if I'm a CIO at an insurance company, how do I stay nimble enough to adapt to it? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. In Justin's comment, he touched on the opportunity to invest in floating rate positions. In a normal period in the cycle, you're seeing maybe 33% of your book turnover on an annual basis if you have deals that average a sort of a three-year term. So as we think about this going forward, I think there's an opportunity here for investors who want to stay nimble, perhaps want to have the ability to move capital around and redeploy it with a floating rate lending strategy to be able to invest now to take advantage of what we see in the marketplace as an outsized return for the risk position, but also to have a natural liquidity in their portfolio, right? And so I think in the equity world, there's a lot of discussion around liquidity and how you create liquidity, for instance, in in an open-ended fund structure. In a debt position, you have this natural liquidity so that you're you're always getting you know a portion of the portfolio repaying and again that can that can speed up or slow down depending upon what's going on in the broader markets right those borrowers can execute additional extensions if they have rights to them uh, they can come back and ask for non as of right extensions but generally speaking an investment in a debt strategy entails a, a constant sort of turnover of your capital and that that gives investors an opportunity to continually make an allocation decision, a redeployment decision, or a decision to deploy elsewhere into another strategy that that might make more sense for them at that at that point in time. That's great, and I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge that CRE debt is an investment in real estate and not a fixed income instrument. What kind of asset class expertise do I need as a manager, given the choppy markets that we're in today? Yeah, th- this is something we think a lot about and talk a lot about at AEW. I think as we approach the market, we see investment in debt, whether it's senior debt or subordinate debt, as an investment into a position in the capital stack of a a piece of, of real estate, right? And so 
at the end of the day, it's a debt instrument, right? Ultimately, we are supplying cash flows from a property to fund payments under a debt instrument. But the underlying reality is that the success or failure of that property is really what drives that cash flow stream, right? And so it's very important from our viewpoint to make sure that you're thinking about real estate aspects, right? As you as you build your investment strategy, you're thinking about who you should be investing with, where you should be investing, right? So diversification, not only geographically, but with respect to the partners that you're investing with as borrowers, the kinds of markets you're getting exposure to, the kinds of businesses and demand drivers that exist in each one of those markets, right? Modern portfolio theory says that diversification is a critical factor in successful investing. And there's multiple levels of diversification as you think about investing into real estate through a debt position. So personally, I believe that investing through a manager who has both equity and debt capabilities is a critical part of the decision because in an extreme downside scenario, you might have to take back and own a piece of property. That's something that happens pretty rarely in real estate lending, but that's kind of the extreme scenario. I think before that happens, with respect to how you underwrite and how you structure and how you asset manage debt investments, that equity capability on the platform becomes critical. And so we talk about those three things that we do all the time on our platform, right? When you're making a loan secured by real estate, you're underwriting, which means you're understanding what the risks are of that particular investment. You're then structuring, meaning you're building a set of covenants, you're building a loan document set that governs and manages and mitigates that risk over time. But then you're asset managing for the life of the deal, for the full term of the loan. And that's the thing you do the longest, right? It might take 60 to 90 days to underwrite and structure and close a deal. But then you might live with that day, with that deal from anywhere from, you know, two years or three years to seven or 10 years, right? And so that asset management function of what we do as a lender, managing that loan, making sure the business plan stays on track, making sure the borrower is being responsive to uh, its contractual obligations under the loan documents is really a critical aspect. And that can only be driven by a successful manager who has that capability on their platform. I like to say that when you document a loan, it's sort of like playing a game of chess all up front before your opponent makes a move. Because Everything you get with respect to your set of rights, your set of covenants, everything that governs the outcome of that investment gets built into the loan documents and documented in those loan documents. And even though you might have opportunities going forward for negotiation or adjustments, generally speaking, you've already played your game of chess at the time you sign those loan documents. And so therefore, it becomes critically important to kind of think about these three components and the importance of, of each of them as, as you document the deal. I'd add one other point, I think, just because it's, I think, something we think a lot about, and that is leverage in a structure and and what creates leverage. You know, I think we all think about leverage generally as financial leverage, meaning that the manager or the fund you're investing in is becoming a borrower. And for instance, a borrower on a warehouse line that's providing leverage for a pool of first mortgages. Uh, and we think of it in, in terms of turns of leverage, right? One-to-one leverage, two-to-one, three-to-one, et cetera. But there also is is leverage that flows structurally from deals. So if you you may be in a sub-debt position behind a senior lender, right? A mezzanine position behind a senior loan, 
And even though as the MES lender, you're not becoming a borrower on that senior loan when you sign up the deal, you are structurally leveraged, right? And so if you take that senior loan amount and divide it by the amount of your MES, it's going to give you a number. It might be one to one, two to one, might be four to one or even higher. That is the structural leverage to your position. And it has a lot of the same impact on your position as financial leverage does with respect to the risk that it adds to the structure. So I just think that as we think about these kind of key factors, manager, diversification, sort of how you're investing structurally, that leverage piece is something to really keep in mind and to keep straight, right, between financial and structural and potentially the risks of of either one of those. That was very helpful and a great explanation. I want to talk about one of the things that our listeners always want to know is implementation, right? Whenever we're talking to CIOs, it's a matter of implementation. And we've kind of touched on this, but if you think about PNC Health and Life, if I'm the CIO of one of those three, there's reinsurance too, of course. How do I play if I'm a PNC investment professional, life or health? What are my options? Stuart, should we start by saying that this is not investment advice? This is just general recommendations. Uh, yeah, you can. All, all, all kidding aside, you know, we think there are a number of ways that you can create the right exposures for behalf of all investors. It doesn't necessarily have to be explicitly for insurance. But I think if you think about the types of liabilities and the duration of those liabilities for various pockets of insurance capital, you know, certainly the life goes have been longtime investors in, you know, longer duration, lower loan to value, higher credit quality, liability immunizing type of fixed rate commercial real estate debt loans. So we think that that will be a space that continues, uh, particularly if the CMBS market is sidelined like uh, it has been, uh, certainly back a little bit in the second half, but it generally is, is much lower loan production. So we think that's an area where that will continue to provide a benefit to life insurance portfolios. And I think on the, uh, the property and casualty side, typically shorter duration liabilities, you need to maintain a more liquid stance. From what Dean said earlier, that if you're a floating rate investor with some level of transition or you know some type of bridge loan that you're providing to the market, you typically have quite a bit of turnover in that portfolio. So you have a reliable liquidity source, uh, and you also pick up you know quite a bit of yield along the way across the market cycle than what is achievable in across public credit. And so we think that they can play a variety of roles in terms of diversification to insurance portfolios. They can also immunize liabilities. And they certainly can be a yield enhancement relative to public fixed income, which regardless of LifeCo or PNC, you're certainly going to have the majority of your portfolio in those publicly available daily liquid fixed income instruments. That is fantastic. And I, I will tell you that I have got one question. I've learned a lot. And I've got one question for each of you on the way out the door. But I can't ask to both because it's going to take too long. So you guys figure out who's going to do what, right? What's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? And who would you most like to have lunch with, alive or dead? I'll take the latter. Dean, you want nice. to take the first? There you go. Okay, so what? who's your lunch guest? I'll take the more sentimental route. I'll say my lunch guest would be my stepfather. Uh, I would say that no single person has had a more profound impact on the trajectory of my life. I wouldn't say I was on a bad path before, but certainly 
coming from a small town, you know, allowed me to see that the world is smaller than you think from a, a very small city that I grew up in. So he gave me a lot of motivation. Uh, he pushed me in the right directions. He's inspired a work ethic in me that I don't think otherwise would have existed. He passed about a decade ago. Uh, so it would be great to catch up over dinner or over lunch, share a few laughs, introduce them to my kids who have come along since he passed. Uh, yeah, maybe even share a cocktail or two. So it'd be a lot of fun. That's fantastic. As a stepdad and a guy who has a daughter who has a stepdad who's been terrific to her, I can really relate to that. So thank you. And Dean, what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? Yeah, I would say uh, the best piece of advice I've ever gotten has been fairly simple. It's been, don't be afraid to say yes, right? Because as you think about life, whether it's from a career perspective or even a personal perspective, there are opportunities that you are confronted with on an almost daily basis, right? Sometimes they're big ones, sometimes they're small ones. But being afraid to take on risk by, you know, moving forward and trying something new, I think can really limit your growth. So especially now when you think about where we are in this market, and if you happen to be a younger person in the industry, there's going to be a lot of opportunities that we will see. They will be different opportunities, maybe from the job that you got hired into, because they, there will be needs uh, that will come up for managing issues that arise as, as this uh, economic environment moves forward. So I think being ready to say yes to those opportunities, even though it may completely change up what you're doing and maybe something that no one else is doing on the platform, really, I think, can help launch your career into something that could be a, a lot more fun maybe than the career you thought you were going to have in the first place. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that, that is really, those are two great answers. And I, I want to thank you. I've, I've gotten a really good, you've educated our audience beautifully on CRE debt, the market, the opportunity set. And uh, I want to thank you both for being on and taking the time. It's been great yeah. to be here. Thank, thank you for having us. Thanks for hosting us, Stuart. A lot of fun. My pleasure. We have been joined by Dean Delcinos, head of debt portfolio management, and Justin Pinckney, head of private debt at AEW. If you like us, please rate us, review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. My name's Stuart Foley, and this is the insuranceaum.com podcast. Thank you.